you right? What's happening? You good? So hopefully I'm not just talking to myself. Hopefully there's someone actually here listening to me. And I'm going to talk to you today in lectures on social class and sport. And we're going to be looking specifically at how sport education and social class overlap. So there's a thought that I just want you to read, pause the screen, have a look at and come back to. Okay. Now, once you've paused it, the main thing that we're getting from this here is the idea that social class is something that is everywhere. It's something that we take for granted because it's so embedded in our everyday lives. So when you're looking at this idea of social class, sometimes we don't always see it and we let take it for granted. And I guess that's what I'm going to hopefully to try and unpack in terms of sport and education today. So just a quick look at our learning outcomes. I'm not going to spend too much time talking through them. Um, but you can just pause them and have a look at them if you feel like that helps you. So to start off with, um, I've got some quotes here that you might want to take in and have a look at. But the reason behind this slide is the argument that initially, sort of in the 90s and prior to that, sort of mid-2000s, there was sort of a bit of an argument that um, social class wasn't important in terms of education and it wasn't important in terms of sport. Um, but actually, in recent years, you know, it's kind of come back to say, well, no, there's been particular social changes. Friedman and Lorison talk about room at the top. Um, particular policy changes, particular one-off events, um, which occurred in terms of the change in industry in Britain, and also things like more people going to university as a result of um, free education for all in 1944, brought about the perception of more people being socially mobile. But recently that's something that we've, we've had to look at more carefully and, and had to start to consider a bit more. So defining social class, um, it's never easy. And I think that's the first thing. Like We can spend a lot of time trying to say I'm this social class or I'm that social class or this group of people are from that social class and this people, group of people from that social class. Um, whereas... You know, actually, we don't really talk about it much in schools anymore or in sport as such. You can see here that the first two terms I've got up here, pupil premium or free school meals, are terms that we use in schools, um, but we don't talk about social class. They don't say working class children, right? Um, and also, when we talk about um, sports development, we see terms like high need areas, disadvantaged young people, social mobility appear in policy a lot appearing the justification for initiatives or not, but they don't necessarily refer to class in the same way that traditionally, as a society, we used to. Now, that could be for a number of reasons, um, and we'll unpick some of that later on. And then down the bottom, I've got um, phrases that maybe we think about more associated with upper class, so things like embraces new opportunities um, and professionalism. And if you think about the term professionalism, it comes from particular industries which were seen as professions, so lawyer, doctor, etc. Behaviours associated with those industries, which were traditionally upper, upper class. So we don't necessarily talk about social class a lot, but we talk about it in a lot of different ways in school, um, in teaching, etc. Maybe it advantages some people, disadvantages others, without being actually explicit about it, okay? Um, now I like this quote here, and what Evans and Davies are effectively saying is that you know, what is social class? Well, it's the mixture of our social relations, so the spaces we're in, the people we know, um, the groups of people that we socialise with, and our economic relations. And that has an impact on our opportunities. 
who we know, who we talk to, who we engage with, how we know, so how I talk, how I walk, how people judge me. All of that is impacted by a social class. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily determine, but it can have a strong influence on people's opportunities throughout life. So this is the most common um, policy sector use of social class you'll see. So this is what we call the NSSEC descriptors. It's based upon job roles, and you can see it goes from traditionally um, professional roles down to roles which are seen to be less skilled. Okay. And when it talks about being less skilled, it means the qualifications you've got to get to do those roles. So if you think about something like a doctor or a lawyer, you're going to be training for seven years to do that. You're going to get your degree. You're then going to carry on training. Teachers, you know, you have to have a degree to do it. You might earn less money than someone on the non-manual group. Someone like um, a carpenter or a mechanic might actually make more money than you. But in terms of the power you have over people, you've probably got a bit more power as a teacher. You've got more influence over someone's future. You've got more influence over what is taught and, and how they see themselves. A scientist has the power to change society through their findings. So they might earn less money, but there's this impact of the role in society as well. And uh, you see the number 14 down there. David O'Brien and a few other scholars, they tend to say what job your parent was when you were age 14 is the social class that you would come from. Okay, so we've got professional, um, intermediate, and manual workers, right? And the reason they choose 14 is because it's the age you do your SATs, um, it's the point that you choose um, your GCSE options, and so it has quite a big influence over what you can achieve, right? If you don't pick the right GCSEs, you can't go on really to become a lawyer or a doctor at the same rate that somebody else could. That's not to say you can't go back and redo that work, but you can't do it at the same speed, all right? Um, and again, uh, don't really need to know too much about this, but the BBC class calculator came out a few years ago. It said that one of the weaknesses of um, Goldthorpe's work in the NSX schema was it was just based upon jobs. Um, Savage and his colleagues, they came up with these different categories. And they basically looked at how much money you've got, so economic capital, who you know, so social capital, and the activities that you engage in, so cultural capital. What, How valued in society are those activities? Um, now, I guess for me, the quote on here that I think is most important is the quote from Imogen Tyler at the bottom there. I'm not really concerned with saying you're established middle class, or you're a new affluent worker, or you're definitely the precariat. What I am concerned with is knowing what opportunities are created as a result of these, right? And so I'm not that bothered about labels, but what I am bothered about is trying to understand what the conditions are that maybe advantage some people and disadvantage others without really people realising. And it's, I'm more interested in the everyday aspects than the grand elements, if you like. Okay, so why should we consider social class? Okay, now the first thing I'm only going to briefly talk about is the current political climate that we've been in. Um, for the last 10 years, we've been in what's called austerity politics. And I don't necessarily want to spend time here taking a position, but effectively, in its most basic sense, understanding austerity politics is understanding. Um, 
it means less public spending, right? So effectively for the last 10 years, things like pupil premium, um, things like school sports premium have come in and they are part of the school's policies, um, but there has been cut to council and government sectors. Um, and so in the last 10 years, some things like sports clubs, youth clubs, school sports partnerships, which existed 10 years ago, don't really play a role today. And we could go into that for a long time. We can discuss this more in a seminar if you've got questions, but that's something that I just wanted to get out there. Okay. Um, the next thing that I wanted to show, and you know, this is a sort of slide that might be useful at the start of a presentation or an essay, is that there's two things to consider. Firstly, if we take the measure of free school meals, um, you know, which if we're talking about free school meals, it's children from a low socioeconomic background. Um, and you can see there the different uh, credits or support that they might be getting. If you go on the Department for Education website, you can see all of those factors. It's quite complex. Um, but children who get free school meals from year three and above, okay, 15% um, of the school population is free school meals, which is the same as pupil premium. Um, now, secondly, I guess the point that I wanted to make in terms of this mapping is that while we say 15%, we say that's quite a low percent of the population. When you look at these maps here, you can see the darker the colours are, um, the higher amount of children from areas of deprivation, right? So while 15% exists, um, it doesn't exist evenly. And the point that people like Lisa McKenzie and Loic Wacom want us to understand is each of those areas will have its own cultural histories and politics which has shaped that. So Lisa McKenzie's wrote a lot about Nottingham, and in particular she's wrote about some of the council estates in Nottingham and how the closure of mines had a big impact on Nottingham. Whereas in London, it might be the closure of particular factories that had an impact, um, and so on. Things like rent prices, council housing, it's different, and each place has a different history. So on the one hand, while as teachers and coaches, we should have a general understanding Secondly, we do need to know and we do need to look at what is the specific, you know, element of what is the specific elements that apply to, um, you know, young people. And, and again, look, you can see city centres are, are pretty high on it, but also coastal areas are another aspect of are pretty high on areas of deprivation as well. Right. So we know that they're different throughout the country. And in terms of social class and education and sport, well, we see it as an impact, all right? If we take the idea of children here who are on free school meals compared to the children who are not, right, we see that there's an impact on the educational qualifications they get. If we come over here and we look at participation in sport, we see that there's lower levels of sport participation. So all of that is stuff that we've got to be aware of and we've got to be thinking about. And again, if you're right, Ness and social class, some of these figures, some of these stats, might be a good justification of hooking me in. Why am I interested? All right. Now, the final part that I wanted to talk about is not necessarily a statistical or numerical part. The other part I want to talk about is this idea of stigma. And if we take this idea of a classed stigma, it's the idea that sometimes we might feel sense of shame based upon our social class when entering different social or cultural settings. Um, I guess the point I also wanted to make here is that we don't. Always, when we're in that setting, we're not aware that we have that 
we have these embodied elements or these markers, but when we go out of that setting, we become conscious. Um, and that sense of shame is created outside of that environment. You know, I think a student spoke to me a while back and they grew up in Peckham. And a member of staff once spoke about, oh yeah, Peckham's a bit of a rough area. And those sort of comments, and I think I've probably been guilty of that in the past, um, can create a sense of shame and a sense of otherness, which is something that is a conscious you know, a consciousness about how people feel. So in terms of us as teachers and coaches, we've got to be very, very careful not to do that. The other point I wanted to say is that actually in terms of social class, it's often seen to be a lot more acceptable to stigmatise class than it is things, you know, such as sexuality or race. Um, you, you know, it, it seems to be a lot more acceptable to stigmatise um, class in that way. And... Um, you know, if I asked you to freeze this for a minute and think about as many insults as you can relate to class, um, whether it be upper class or lower class, I'm sure you could come up with a list as long as your hand. If you want to do that, you want to pause it, you want to share it with me, I look forward to hearing some of those later on, okay? All right, so getting into sport and getting into education. I think that's the main thing that you guys are interested in now that you've had the background. So the impact of economic capital and social networks. First of all, it, it has a large impact on opportunities, right? In the sense that the day-to-day -day practices that exist in schools and sports clubs in many ways are shaped by a social class. If we go back to the idea of being a professional, sounding a certain way, acting a certain way, being a certain way, for a teacher is often associated with middle-class norms. How you talk, how you sound, we've often heard teachers pulled up on it and teach training and so forth. Um, and that's transmitted to the kids as well. Do you write a particular way? Who, like when we say that idea about taking for granted practices, where did they come from? All right. Um, and we're guilty of it in physical education sometimes. Our practices that we expect to see taught in PGCE and teaching settings look like the settings that exist in sports clubs. But what about? That practice looks very different to the practice that exists in other coaching settings. Um, things like living in a catchment area is probably not something that many of you have thought about, but you know it's a very middle class thing to do. You know, you look at your house price, and your house price goes up if you move to a particular school with an outstanding Ofsted. And that's something that some people have the freedom to do. Some people will buy houses based upon the Ofsted of the school to give their kids the best advantage, right? Um, and that's something that we don't always think about, but, you know, Stephen Ball talks about this. What's the best way to improve your school's grades? The best way to improve your school's grades is to make sure you get the kids who fit the best criteria. And Catholic schools is another area which have often been seen to be guilty of doing this. Um, you know, you're asking for kids to show a particular commitment by going to church week in, week out. They have to show a certain level of dedication in the family. If you've got those qualities that you see as valued, then you're taking on board kids who demonstrate those values. There's a school in Essex uh, called Campion, which is, is notorious for this. You have to not only go to church every week, you also have to commit every Saturday for your kids to go and join the rugby team and play rugby. So only the parents who've got that commitment will do that. So you'll get generally quite a lot of more middle-class parents, and the working-class parents you've got have got the characteristics and behaviours the school wants. All right? Um, now, one of the other things that 
you know, Sharon Wheeler talks a lot about, she's done some brilliant research and I'd encourage you to look at it, is um, investing in extracurricular activities. The amount of time and money that middle class parents and upper middle class parents and elite parents invest in putting their children in extracurricular activities and sport. Now, we think of that as being nothing really. Like for me, like my background, you know, I'm, I am a middle class, even though I've got some capital from different areas and my background's not straightforward. My mum put me in swimming from a very, very early age. Now that's, that's seen as normal. You know, when I've done interviews with people, they often talked about swimming as a normal thing when they're from a middle class background. Um, but again, like actually, when we look at that, sending your kid to a sports club is providing them with qualities and skills which is seen to have value in school. So a lot of the students from that background that I spoke to spoke about having a transferable value. They got on with their PE teachers because they'd done a lot of sport outside of school. By doing a lot of sport outside of school, they were seen to have value and then that helped improve them. And then the other thing, area that we sometimes talk about is this idea of hot knowledge, right? So the concept of hot knowledge is being able to tell, going out, being able to go and talk to somebody who knows the best place to go. What's the best, you know, to get into that school, what do you need to do? Um, you know, or to get into that uni, what sort of things are helpful? And that's one of the things that we've seen that, that can be seen to impact op opportunities unequally. Um, so the next thing I wanted to focus on is this idea of concerted cultivation. And I just want you to have a look at these pictures and I just want you to freeze it for a moment and answer those questions. Okay? If we take things like early years sports clubs, what is learning? Okay. So once you've answered those questions, I want you just to have a think for a second, right? And for me, when I look at this, you know, there's a few things that jump to mind. Things like rugby tots, uh, teddy tennis, uh, all of these tumble tots. It's about preparing people for school, right? So how often do you hear the parents who are anxious and there's that level of anxiety? I'm not sure that they, you know, they've got great social skills right now. I'm not sure that they're getting on with other kids right now. Oh, they're not very good at listening. So often their reason for putting them in these sports clubs is related to these things. Now, if you think about it, what is being learned? Well, they're learning to be taught by an adult who is not their parent, okay? They're learning to wear a uniform. They're learning to be passive and, and listen. They're learning embodied skills. And if we think about that, why is that important? Well, because the kids who go to these activities before, before school have already got somewhat sort of experience, and those who don't. Now, we know these activities aren't cheap, but this is what Annette LaRue calls concerted cultivation. All right? And again, we often hear that this happens a lot in middle class, and I'm using this term really lazily, and I apologise for that. But, you know, people from the intermediate and professional backgrounds, if we go back to golf schema, this happens more for those individuals. Why does it happen more for those individuals? It's often based upon the anxiety of, am I doing enough for my child? Right, so this idea of concerted cultivation, am I giving them the best opportunities? And that investment in time and money often comes as a result of that. So Evans and Davies wrote a really interesting paper where they said, why does school PE not matter at all? And they were being quite facetious in it, but they were kind of suggesting that some of the advantages that are gained from PE in sport are actually gained outside the school. Right, the other question that sometimes people ask is this, you know, this bigger question about class and advantage. You know, independent and comprehensive schools. So why do we see more Olympians from independent schools? Okay, 
Um, why do we see more rugby players from independent schools? And then I've put next to this, I don't think you can see it very well, but I've put the example of uh, the caste system in India. And the question there is, why do we see more Indian cricketers coming from a Brahmin background? Right. So we see it in England, but we see it in other countries as well. So why do these two things occur? All right. So just pause it and I want you to have a, a think and have a few ideas for a minute. And again, this is something that you can come back to me with once we've finished talking. Okay, now I think, first of all, I'm going to give you a massively oversimplified answer to some of this. Um, but actually, why do we see a lot of Olympic medal winners from independent schools? Well, if we look at the sports in Britain that they win in, they are traditionally upper middle class sports that are only really taught at independent schools, right? Um, so it reflects the tastes of that group. Um, and look, there's more factors to it as well. Like if we take the example of funding, what percentage of rowers are funded? Not a huge amount. So how many young people carry on in rowing if they get dropped from funding? You know, there's a certain level of the bank of mum and dad that will support some of those individuals. So like, we have to think about some of those things as well, right? Um, and as I said, like if we, if we take the idea of... Uh, the Indian subcontinent, and we look at their cricket team and the overrepresentation of Brahmin cricketers. Well, that's very class-based as well, as is rugby, you know. And I think it always makes me laugh when I hear class talks about in rugby. They're like, "Where are all the state school kids?" And I'm like, "Oh, like sometimes if you look at the quote I've got there, the rough diamonds, Ellis Genji and Carl Sinclair. When you hear Carl Sinclair spoke about, he went to a state school, and he grew up in London, so he's got to be, he's got to be lower class, like." hang on, like, it's a bit more complex than that, isn't it? So, again, I think tastes come into it, um, and that's something we're going to talk about, but also systems, structures, opportunities, all play into it as well, okay? So, thinking about patterns in social class, and this is something that I think, you know, we've started to touch upon with the independent school stuff and questions about concerted cultivation. Um, again, right, I just want to stop for a second and pause this video, and answer those questions there what characteristics do we see in terms of space equipment and so on will i ever think okay so for me i think what we see is that in many ways the sports that people play can be argued in some ways to reflect the space they're in if we look at the use of the body we look at close contact how people lose and win if we take a sport like boxing it is very close contact um, it's violent isn't it it's aggressive um, it competes in a very small space okay and if we look at that we could say that that reflects the history and the background of where the sport comes from there's been an argument of if you look in the USA to see which boxers um, are the most successful it usually comes from the latest group of migrants and again I wanted to touch a bit more on the intersection of class and race um, we're going to do that later on because I've just not got time to do that today. But again, if we look at football, how close people are together, um, does that reflect the industrial era where football came about? 100%. Uh, rowing, tennis, horse running, there's big spaces between the competitions um, and how you win and lose. Some of it is aesthetic, some of it's on points. Football, boxing, you're invading someone else's space. Rugby does mess this up. 
okay? And I guess the thing that I would always say for rugby, if we go back and we unpick its history, actually what you see with rugby, in terms of the way it's played, kicking a ball forward, to go forward makes sense, throwing a ball backwards to go forward don't make no sense. But when we look at it and we really unpick it, actually what we see is the game is a really good metaphor for war and training officers in the army, right? Hold your ground. If we look at what war traditionally used to look like, so so we you know hold your ground, defend your ground, move forward. Um, very very basic analysis of that, but you know we can see that it, it kind of reflects that. So if we look at some of Miriam Stoyge's work, um, this was done in Belgium. They compared students from lower socioeconomic status to students from middle and upper class, and they came up with these different you know, different characteristics of what P and sport was like. Now, the, I guess the two things that I think for me are really important, right, is firstly, in terms of students from lower SES, they were more likely to rely upon teachers and schools to give them that initial experience. So it's not necessarily about the next experience, but they're more likely to be introduced in that or be in a sports club related to their school. And actually in some of my research, that's what I found as well. A lot of the young people who came from lower socioeconomic areas were involved in sport development projects. Um, the middle and upper class children were more likely to do an external sports club. Now, Stoich said with their family, but what it actually means is they were more likely to be influenced by family members or family friends. So then, like... While the parents might actually outsource the time and not do it together, not spend the time together, they're more likely to do more technologically developed sports, something like tennis, you need a racket, something like golf, you need a club, um, something like rowing, you need a boat, something like horse riding, you need a horse, right? Um, but, yeah, it was often done with club members, so it was often about expanding the social network of who they know, whereas... Children from low, low socioeconomic backgrounds more likely to do it in their area, often in their school, often with people they already knew. Um, and there was less structured sport earlier on in life. So that's a pattern that it's worth us being aware of and thinking about. So then if we get into these ideas about barriers impacting participation in lower socioeconomic status settings, and I know I'm kind of rushing through, um, well, let's have a look at the barriers. So when some of the work's been done, okay, um, social networks is a big thing, okay? And what sort of Kwambi and Dadkas and some of the others have said is that actually it's, we have to understand the informal pedagogic practices, right? So formal pedagogy is what I do as a teacher, but how do I learn to be, you know, how do I develop the taste that I've developed? Well, often these are shaped within the family unit and the local environment. And sometimes that can put me off trying a new sport because... That's not something someone like me does. All right, so most of you will all have that experience at some time. Uh, I'm not doing croquet because someone like me does not do croquet. Um, and some of that can come from a lack of modelling in the home environment. Now, that lack of modelling can come down to time, it can come down to money, it can come down to a number of different factors. Okay, um, but where do we get our primary socialisation and learning? At home, largely, is where it's been argued. All right, and again, I'd quite like to unpick some of this as we go through. Um, and peers' engagement in negative behaviours can distract young people. So sometimes, even if sport is offered, um, either the fact that there's negative behaviours going on in the environment can put people off doing it, or actually, it can be more appealing 
because of the chance to overcome things like financial challenges, right? So again, I'm sure most of you have sort of thought about some sort of at times like, do you know what, I could go and do that and earn a bit more money than what I'm doing right now. Um, and I guess I would always talk about the social gravity. How strong is that pull to that activity? How strong is the pull to the other activity? So how strong is my pull to sport? How strong is my pull to my peer group and to engage in the behaviours that might have a negative impact on my participation in sport? Okay. Um, in terms of norms of social spaces, I guess what I'm referring to here is, you know, actually, the first one was about who I know, my network. This point here, I guess I'm talking about the structural conditions. So, like, busy lives of parents, parents' working hours, travel and support and family are often factors that, you know what, I've seen impact students at university. So if you look around your room, there'll be four or five people in this room who aren't taking part in sport or aren't taking part in university sport because of some of these things. You know, they've got busy lives, long hours to work, and, you know, so they might have to go and pick a brother up from school, etc., which means that they don't engage in particular things. So as teachers and coaches, we have to know that. Um, location and risk are really, really important factors, right? And, um, you know, if we, you know, in schools, we've got to be aware of that. But as coaches working in the community, we have to be aware of that as well. Picking the right venue might mean that the right children, that children come. If we pick the wrong venue, children from particular environments might not come because their parents see it's too much as a risk. I'm not letting them out. I'm not letting them go there. Um, you know, and again, Kwambi and others have picked that up in their research. Um, and also, if the school doesn't have a sporting culture, if the school doesn't have the opportunities embedded in it, and again, you know, we've done some research that shows the more children from free school meals there are at a particular school, the less likely they are to offer particular sports, right? Um, so if it's not celebrated there, there's a chance people might not engage. Now, I want to flip that round and let's have a look at the positive factors. So sorry for the change in font because that last one hurt my eyes a bit. But actually here, what we've seen, family and friends can really positively engage young people. So if they've got friends who are actively engaged in a sports club, that network and that link is really important. And as teachers, as coaches, as people running sports development projects, if we want to get more people in, we want to get more people in after school clubs, using that social capital to say, this has got value, this is good, that's the start of it, right? Schools with strong sports cultures kind of goes without saying. PE teachers who understand the lived experience. And I think that that's really important. You understand, you're not judging, you're not shaming, right? And I'll, the example I'll give is I spoke to a student who was doing his PGC a couple of years ago. He's a South London boy, um, and he was doing a placement in his local school. Started there, first day of PGC, and one of the teachers has turned around to him, and he's 20, 21, and he went, oh, God, I worried about getting my phone leaked here. And straight away, that has had a negative experience on that young person's PGC. And that sense of stigma kicks in there, right? It's not aimed, it's not aimed to be negative, but, you know, having an understanding of our actions, um, that's part of making the environment feel safe. So not judging, knowing each child for who they are, not having predetermined expectations, you know, not expecting young people to 
conform to a particular way, I think is really, really important. Understanding the culture, what we spoke about at level four, you know, um, and teachers are responsive to the experience of the young people. Okay, and, and you know, I think the big thing that a lot of you would think about the teacher you had a good relationship with is the informal things, the little conversations that they had um, in between drills, after getting changed, etc. It's those things that will get people coming back, right? So those are some of the factors to think about. Being positive, encouraging opportunities, actively as a teacher, actively looking for opportunities if you're working with people from young, uh, young people from lower socioeconomic areas, actively looking for, there's this coaching course, can I put you on it? There's you know this chance to go and uh, get a trial here, or there's this opportunity to go and um, compete at the youth games, there's a bus going on. All of those things are really, really important if we want to get young people engaged, okay? And just to sum up then, um, you know, Kwame and Dadkas said that actually, if we were to go to social class and if you look at participation from upper, higher and lower socioeconomic class, the main things that underpin it, safety and security, spoke about that a fair bit, providing opportunities, okay, educating young people about about what opportunities there are, okay? The role of the parent and carer, are they a parent, you know, do we have the opportunity to engage with them, gain support? Do we sometimes have to step in and, you know, bridge that gap? Which a lot of the young people I've interviewed spoke about teachers, some of their teachers as being like second parent. Okay, time, finance and taste. What are young people's interests? That can be in terms of sport, but it can be in terms of the wider culture as well. If they're not interested in a particular sport, how do we draw them in through an interest in the other aspects of culture and taste? How do we make them see that adds value? Okay, um, so I'm going to stop it there, and we're going to talk a lot more again later on down the line about social class and its intersections with other elements of identity, such as gender and race. We're also going to talk about how it might, you know, what we can do a bit more in practice. Um, so yeah, thank you for listening. Um, I am sweating through trying to get this done at a decent pace to not bore you too much. Um, and hopefully you've got some useful bits from that.